church is about. It's about people trying to become good. It's about people trying to be better, be better versions of yourself. It's like church is a perpetual New Year's resolution, you know. This week, God, I really mean it. I'm going to be good. I'm going to be better. And it seems from the eyes of someone who maybe does not share a religious view, it seems that all religions, are, it doesn't matter which one you choose so long as it, the end result is not terrorism or violent acts or hatred, but so long as those, that religion results in you being good, then it's fine, right? On the flip side of this, if someone who doesn't believe in any particular faith or any particular religion, they'll say, well, I don't believe in any religion. I, I'm sort of non-religious, because I see the goodness in all humanity. I mean, there's good in all of us. And it sort of seems like the central, this point that, that whether you believe in God or whether you don't believe in God, the, the, the hinge that it sort of pivots on is this, this point of goodness. Interestingly enough, Christianity is the only religion that gives us a pretty good explanation for why it is human beings are capable of so much goodness and yet also capable of so much evil. The Christian explanation to this is that we're made in God's image. The imago Dei, the Latin phrase says, the image of God. And because of that, once in a while, even if we're not a religious person, we do good things. We'll give our seat up for someone else. We'll help someone you know, load their groceries in the cart. We'll do all kinds of nice things because we're made in God's image. This, by the way, is the reason, if you've ever had a conversation with someone who says, well, my non-Christian friends are being good than my Christian friends. Why is that? Well, they're capable of some degree of goodness. Pardon me, no need for dramatic pause there, just needed a drink. But the, the, the Christian version of this goes on to say, well, it's not, it's, the end of the story is not just that we're made in God's image, but that we have a fallen nature, that this image of God in us has somehow been bent or marred or stained, and so we have this tendency, we have this bent towards sin or disobedience. It's interesting, even in the book of Deuteronomy, God's talking to Israel through Moses, and Moses is saying, look, I know your disposition towards idolatry, so I'm going to give you all these commands, but I know you're already going to do this and this and this and this, which is remarkable. So, okay, well, yeah, I got that. I mean, that seems to be fine, and I understand that setup of it. That we're, okay, we're made in the image of God, so we have the capacity for goodness, yet we have this fallenness to our nature, so it's never quite right. <clears throat> we have a proclivity towards sin and disobedience. I get that. But what is it that God wants from us? Because even if you settle that issue and say, okay, well, so I, I sometimes can do good and sometimes I can do evil. Thanks, Glenn. I kind of knew that. All I needed for proof of that was a talk with my spouse about how I did this last week. I know I can do sometimes good and sometimes not so good. So what is this about and how is Christianity different? Because is Christianity us just saying, okay, God wants you to live this certain way, so now go do it. And sometimes the way that we present the gospel is nothing more than a second chance, right? The gospel is a second chance. So, look, you've done a terrible job so far, but guess what? Good news, you get a second chance. If you really think about it, it's not very good news. You ever had that moment where you were called up in front of the classroom to do a math problem, and the equations on the board, I'm looking at Greg Martin here, he's got his PhD in accounting. This moment never happened to Greg. But for the rest of us that were, you know, novices at math, or hated math maybe, you get called up to the front of the classroom and there's this equation and the teacher says, here, work it out in front of the whole class. 
And you're like, okay, I'm going to try. You know, 10 minutes later, you're like, nah, I got no clue. The teacher says, I got good news for you. What's that? You get to try again. So that's not good news. You're just going to humiliate me in front of my friends. You know, I got good news. I'm going to erase the board and you get to start over. That's not good news. If all the gospel is, is another shot at being good, that's not good news. Right? The other version that we have, and you say, okay, okay, well, I kind of get that. But then what is it? What is it we're talking about? Because this whole idea of goodness is, in it, again, we've talked about how it's this hinge point with all religions or non-religion. What is it that we Christians believe about it? I think that the other more common notion about goodness with Christians is that goodness is our response to God. I love Keith Green, and I, you know, I love Keith Green music, but one of my favorite lines, favorite as in a line that, I re- that really bothered me for a long time, was the line that he had in one of his songs that said, Jesus rose from the grave and you couldn't even get out of bed. Like, gee, wow. Like, seriously. You know, like, is that like a slap on the wrist for not getting up early to do my quiet time? Or like, gee, you rose from the grave. The least I could do is not hit snooze, you know. And we have this, we have this mentality, and if you really pressed somebody to say, why is it we should live this way? Chances are you'd hear an answer that goes something like this. Well, because of everything God has done for us, right? And it's sort of like this gratitude ethic, this, this ethic that says, well, God has done all of this, and look at this mountain of goodness and this mountain of faithfulness that God has shown toward you. Now what are you going to do? And we have this, mentality, this idea that faith is like a chess game, and God makes a move, and then you make a move. And, and God's biggest move, his big play, was Jesus. And now he's looking down from heaven saying, okay, what you got? I did the whole incarnation bit, crucifixion, resurrection, pretty awesome. What's your move? And we're like, well, I can't compete with that. So then we find ourselves saying, well, I, I mean, I can't compete with that, and I, but I feel like I'm supposed to. So my response is going to be, God, I'll just try my best, and you know my heart, and hopefully when the time comes, you'll let me into heaven. And as for the being good in between, I don't really know, but hopefully everything will work out. The Muslim idea of this is, well, just make your good works outweigh your bad ones, and in the end, there'll be some sort of cosmic scale, and God will weigh the things in the balance, and oh, you know, you know, and hopefully the good outweighs the bad. Is that our understanding of goodness? What is it? that we believe about this? And why are we trying to become like Christ? Is it simply our response, albeit a response out of gratitude and love? But is that it? That God makes his move and then we're done? It's up to us to respond. Tonight we're continuing the We Are series and the, the, the blank that we're filling in for the We Are series tonight is we are God's workmanship. Because I think the gospel is much better news than some of us have suspected. It's much better news than maybe we could have even hoped for. Our text is in Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. We heard it in the message, or at least portions of it in the message, and now we'll read it in the NIV. Ephesians 2, verse 8 says this, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us 
to do. The first thing I want us to see tonight, and maybe this is the obvious one, is that God's work comes first. God's work comes first. In theological terms, they call this the priority of grace. Now, in a church like this, sometimes when we, you know, we get carried away with all of our seeking and all of our Arminian theology of I need to do this before God does this, and our, the verses that stick in our minds are the verses like, Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Or we think of all the, well, what about all the if-then verses in the Old Testament, right? Well, didn't God say to Israel, look, if you do this, then I'll do this. And if you, I mean, it just seems like there's a whole lot that rests on me. And I've got to do something first if God's going to do something back. You're like, I was never good at doing that first. I never wanted to go first. The thing that we miss, even in the Old Testament, is how much God's grace always comes first. Isn't it remarkable that God called Israel out of Egypt before he ever gave them a single commandment? You think, well, I, I mean, what about the Ten Commandments? And all, you know, God's, he certainly had expectations for them. Sure. But he didn't say, here, obey these laws, and then we'll see about getting you out of Egypt. In fact, the way Moses rewords it in the early chapters of Deuteronomy is he says, look, don't think that God chose you because you were a great people. You're not. <laughs> you know, I sometimes, I sometimes detect a hint of resentment in Moses' tone because he says things like, remember because of your stubbornness, I'm not going in the land, you know. It's your fault. And he says, look, it's not because you're so righteous. And he go, we got it, Moses. He goes, um, it's because you're, but you're a stiff-necked people. We got it. You're stubborn. I know. But God chose you to be his treasured possession. That doesn't make any sense. You're right. A prelude to grace, maybe. A picture of what Jesus, what God in Jesus would do for the whole world. That all of us were chosen, that while we were yet sinners, while we were still far from God, while we insisted on treating God like an enemy, he was trying to find a way to make us his friends. Maybe all of this is a picture that really, yes, there's this thing about the if-thens and the if-I-draw-near and all this stuff, but even before all of that, God's grace comes first. Never for a moment believe that you started this thing. You didn't. Never for a moment believe that you're here today because we're good enough. Or as L'Oreal has taught us to say, because I'm worth it. Never believe for a second that what God has done in us is because we've deserved that or because I did something first. Or I, God's work comes first. But I think we understand that. Maybe what's more to the point is Philippians 2, verse 12 and 13. I love this. I love this passage because all of it's loaded in it. Listen to this. Dear friends, you always followed my instructions. This is Paul talking. When I was with you and now that I am away, it is even more important. Work hard to show the results of your salvation. We know this phrase as work out your salvation in fear and trembling. But I, I like this translation of it because that is, the, the structure of the Greek in this is work out the results of what's already happened inside. Not a work out your salvation as in do some stuff to earn this, but work it out. Work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear, for God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases Him. 
The reason I can work out my salvation is because God is working in me. Not only does God's work come first, but, I, but God's work continues in us. The truth of the gospel is not that God has done something and now it's our turn to sort of, okay, God, well, dug out it. I'm just going to try not to lose my temper. I'm going to try to be a better dad, and I'm going to try to spend more time, and I'm going to try, I'm going to try, God, because of everything you've done for me, Jesus. But that we can work out our salvation because God is working inside of us. This verse isn't really about how we earn our salvation. It's really about how we show it. We show our salvation by working it out, but that, even that is because God is at work inside. I was thinking about this word, the word that's used, that's translated in, in, in this passage for God is working in you. It's this Greek word energon. Or we get words like energy or energize out of that, this sort of this word. And it's this idea that it is God that is the energy inside you that gives you the power to uh, desire and the ability to do his will. Isn't that incredible? And then because my mind's kind of weird, I started thinking about Energizer, and I thought I should think about the Energizer bunny, and then I started thinking about, rap, rap, you know, batteries. Not rabbits, but batteries. That's, that's a no, different tangent. But batteries, and then I started thinking about robots, naturally. So I got this little robot at Walmart this week. This is quite the robot, you know. And, uh, yeah, you know, he'll make cooler sounds than that. He's des- this robot is designed to do some pretty cool things, and, uh, and it's built to do a lot, of, a lot of good stuff. And you could probably guess the kinds of things this robot was built to do. But you see where I'm going. Without batteries, this robot is designed to do a lot of good things, maybe was created for good works, but incapable of it without the batteries. Now, with the batteries, he does some pretty cool things. Let's see here if we can get him going. Wait, he walks. Watch, watch. Just a minute. Come on, buddy. Oh, there we go. I know. It's amazing. If anyone has a son that's between the ages of three and eight, you can have this after the service, okay? But this uh, Transformers knockoff is an interesting picture, the Walmart version, is an interesting picture because here is something designed for a particular thing. So well, why are human beings, why, are we so, why do we have the capacity for so much goodness and yet sometimes fall so short? Why do we sometimes desire to do things we're incapable of actually following through on? Why do we make the grandest of promises like a marriage vow? And yet find ourselves so woefully incapable of keeping it. Because we were built for good works. But we need God working in us. All right. That's nice. So is the message then that, thank God it's not up to me and I can just, woohoo! What do we do with this? How does this affect us? How then should we live? I love this, um, again, the Ephesians 2 passage, the, the, the work that we, um, uh, the passage that we read in the message earlier, the message translation of it, there's this phrase where he says, look, 
God does both the making and the saving. He creates each one of us by Christ Jesus to join him in the work that he does. How do we join him in this work? What is our role? What is our role in saying, okay, we are God's workmanship. It's great. Designed for good works. God's work comes first. God's work continues. But what do we do to join him in this work? What is our role? I think in a very simple sense, and at the risk of of being overly simplistic, I think our role is simply to cooperate with him. To say, all right, God, I want to cooperate with you. But in order to do that, there's typically two things that sort of have to happen. I think we have to be willing to make space for him. I think we have to be willing to say, okay, God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to carve out space where I can hear you, where I can sit, where I can meditate, where I can listen. And I think there's got to be ways that we actively engage him. And here's the interesting thing about it. Eight times in the New Testament, there's this little phrase, make every effort. Now, those little verses can be the source of trouble or confusion because Taken without this as the backdrop, we could say, make every effort. I told you it's all about you. You better get on your horse and try start living right. Get your life together. But the make every efforts that show up in the New Testament are interesting because they're not these statements about earning, but they're these statements about how to cooperate. How to enter that rest. That's one of my favorite ones. Hebrews 4.11. We make every effort to enter the rest. Effort and rest sort of seem like oxymorons, paradoxes. Make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, at peace with him. Peter writes that. Make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to your goodness knowledge and to your knowledge. Make every effort to be cooperating with him. How, what does that look like? I think one of... The Bible's favorite pictures of, of um, formation is this, this imagery of the potter and the clay. And um, it'd be foolishness for a lump of clay to kind of say, well, uh, I'm going to try to be a vase today. And I'm going to will myself into vaseness, vasehood. I really mean it today. I'm going to be a vase. Today's the day. I'm done. I'm done. I'm, today's the day. I'm done being a lump of clay. Today's the day I become a vase. There's something about the 12-step program that would do us all good to kind of be aware of. Because you know what step one is? I am powerless. I am powerless. In the context of this thing of, okay, if I'm going to make every effort, I've got to first sort of start by saying, I am the clay. Maybe the way that we can say it is God is in charge of the process and the progress, and I am responsible for my response. The tricky thing about this is sometimes God being in charge of the process and the progress is not how we want it to be. We'd like to be more advanced than we are. We'd like to be more, we'd like this guy. Could you work on this timeline? I'm getting married next year, and I would like this and this and this to be in order. And most of us have lived long enough to know that it doesn't always sort of pan out 
this way. There's something to this of saying, okay, before I can make every effort, I've got to first understand that I'm not the one in charge. You're the potter, I'm the clay. I want to respond, I want to be soft. That the way I cooperate with you is by having a soft heart, by being willing to listen, by being open to correction, however it comes, by being moldable, by being shaped, allowing myself to be shaped for you, by you. We were talking about this with our team a little bit earlier. I think sometimes the reason why we never, we we have a hard time saying, well, how do I respond to God? I, I don't even know what God is doing in my life at this moment. And part of the reason for that is because our life is full of clutter. And there's so much noise and there's so much stuff and there's so many voices and so much activity and there's so much of all of that. How can we begin to be aware of what God is doing in our lives? I think a wonderful question to ask when you sit down in your car alone or you sit down with your journal or you sit down with your Bible is, okay, God, make me aware today of what you're doing in my heart. What is it you're working on today? Maybe today he's working on a little bit of this patience thing. Maybe tomorrow he's working on, maybe it's something that doesn't quite seem to be systematic at all. Doesn't quite seem to be all following, working in a specific order. But there is this sense that, God, you're the one that's at work and your work continues. And How can my heart be soft? How can my heart be sensitive? How can my heart be aware? Now, those are not the kinds of words that are easily um, applied, you know? So what does that mean? You've got to test that out. The point is, can we make our effort as a sign of God's grace in us and not just this starting point? Can our effort towards becoming Christ-like be this, this idea of cooperating with God's work in us? If we are God's workmanship, if we are the ones that God, is crea- that God has created, if we are the ones that God is working in, even in unlike, the unlikeliest of moments and situations and circumstances, if we are that, how can we cooperate with him? There's this beautiful moment in um, the Narnia, one of the Narnia books, the book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Anybody read the, the Narnia books? Love them. They're awesome, right? I uh, hesitate to admit that last year was the, was the first time I actually read all of them all the way through, and uh, I was so moved by him, you know, I, particularly in Don Treader for some reason, it's about a mouse, you know, it's about a cheap. but here I was, I was finishing the book on an airplane, and I couldn't fight the tears, but anyway, um, there's this moment where this kid, Eustace, you know, he's a super obnoxious kid, and uh, he's a real pain to the rest of the crew and on the ship, and everybody's like, dude, Eustace, come on. And, and, he, and, and, and there's this moment where they, they, they go to this island and he becomes a dragon and it's really sort of this weird thing. But it's a, it's a, you know, it's a picture of what is happening even in his own heart and he becomes, it's got all these scales on him. And he feels like Aslan, the, the lion, the, you know, the Christ figure, is calling to him and he goes to this place and he starts to kind of rip off the scales and kind of, you know, I don't want to be this dragon anymore. And he feels like, Aslan has told him, okay, go ahead, peel it off. And he's peeling it off. But every time he peels it off, there's another layer there. Just such a picture of our own, sometimes our own struggle. 
in life. God, every time I see my, I get one thing down, I got another thing that's popping up. Yeah. I got dragon skin. And Aslan says, okay, you need me to do this. And he rips deep into him with his lion claws, rips the skin off of him. And he, he realizes he's a boy again. He becomes, you know, no, no longer a dragon. But I love this little quote that follows. It would be nice and fairly nearly true to say that from that time forth, Eustace was a different boy, but to be strictly accurate, he began to be a different boy. He had relapses. There were still many days when he could be very tiresome, but most of those I shall not note. The cure had begun. For all of us that are living this Christ life, the good news is that the cure has begun. Yes, we've been forgiven. Yes, God's work came first. And yes, we've been forgiven. But the act of transformation is underway. It's happening. And here's the better piece of this. God's work comes first. God's work continues. You can guess this. God's work will be completed. I find great confidence in knowing this. On the days where it feels like my sanctification is wrestling two steps forward, one step back, and it seems like, God, I'm trying to cooperate with you. I'm trying to have a soft heart. And most of the time, God reveals the things in our hearts, the, the dragon skin, if you will, in us through the ones that are closest to us, through conversations that are painful. But I find great confidence in knowing that the work will be completed. Paul says it this way in Philippians 1. I'm certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it's finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. In the message, there has never been, there has never been the slightest doubt in my mind that the God who started this great work in you would keep at it relentlessly and bring it to a flourishing finish on the very day that Christ Jesus appears. I have good news for us. Because we are God's workmanship, He will not stop until He's done. He will not stop until He's done. You can see that this is grace. This is God at work in the beginning at first. This is grace, God at work right now in the midst of us. And this is grace, God at work, the one who completes it at the very end when Jesus appears. I... There's incredible hope in knowing that I'm not in charge of the process or the progress. I'm not the one that's got to lay out a timeline to say, okay, God, would you do this by this date and work this out? And I really would hope, would love for this area to be done. But I am responsible to make every effort to keep my heart tender, to, to keep listening, to stay humble, to rest, to trust, to believe. When I was... In high school, I homeschooled my high school years. Um, we had returned to Malaysia from living in the States for three years, and, and uh, it was the only r real school option for us, and, and um, it was wonderful. I loved it, and I was sort of a self-motivated learner, but every other week or every other day, I would show up to my parents and say, okay, I've got it all figured out. If I did this amount of work each day, you know, I'd be done by this day, you know? And those of you that are homeschool families, you will relate to that, you know. Like, okay, if we did this today, this, if we cram this, we cram, I can be done. But, you know. And my dad would always make fun of me. So right, you've got it all figured out, I see, you know. And that was a little joke. Glenn, you've got it all figured out. And the hardest lesson for me, even as a young adult, is learning to, to embrace that 
I'm not in charge of this life. I'm not in charge of the process or the progress. I'm powerless against these things, but my hope is in the God who is relentless in his work. My hope is not in my ability to plan and chart and figure and, 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 and map out a course. My hope is in the God who began this work, this work who will not stop until he's done. And in the meantime, all through the, the, the days that, fall, that are in between, he's the energy inside that gives me the desire and the power to actually do what I was designed to do. Does God mean to make us good? Yes. Does he mean for us to do it as a response to everything he's done? No. I sent out a tweet this morning asking the question, are our good works a response to God's grace or the result of his grace in us? I think, too, and I had a few responses, they're both, because they both sound right. But I would argue that it is only the latter that our good works are solely the result of God's grace at work in us. We are God's workmanship. We are his work. A real piece of work at times. (laughs) But his work. His work. His work. His work. Let's pray. God, it seems simple just to say that, that we are your workmanship, that you're the one that works in us, but yet it's so hard to let go of the control of it, to trust you, to say, okay, if my role is to cooperate, to surrender, to be soft, to have a tender heart, to be open to correction, all of that, God, let us be that. Let us be people with soft hearts, not people grasping to be in control, feeling like we have to impress you, feeling like we've got to be on a particular schedule to keep you happy. But God, help us to accept that we are responsible for our response. So every time we hear you speak to us, every time you nudge us through the correction of a friend or a spouse or a family member or a loved one, make us soft to respond that way. Every time we sense you nudging us through a voice, through a scripture, through a passage, make us soft to respond. God, give us the hope, the hope that takes over, the hope that really takes root inside of us, the hope that takes over inside of us, that we believe that God, you who began the work, will be completed. Let us not have any doubt about it. Let us be confident in it. Let that confidence change the way that we interact with others, the patience that we have with each other, because we know that each of us are your work. So do your work in us. Help us always say yes to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Tonight we have the joy of celebrating with about nine people who've said yes to Jesus, said yes in a very dramatic way and are saying yes tonight in a very public way through the waters of baptism. And so what we're going to do is, is we're, because there's a, there's a small enough group of us, <coughs> excuse me, as each of them gets in this magnificent horse trough, brand new, driven down by uh, Lindsay, wherever she is, and, and Rod, 
and strapped to the roof of their car. I mean, I just want to amp this up for you. As they get in, I'm gonna, we're going to ask them a question, you know, at their name and when they came to faith in Christ, and then we're going to baptize them, and we're going to celebrate with them as the body of Christ. Amen? Because yes, it's a public declaration of their faith. Yes, it's an identification with Christ's death and resurrection. Yes, it's this physical demonstration of a spiritual reality. But you know what? It's also a sign that they are initiated into the family. They belong to Christ, and they belong to us, and we belong to them. We are one together. You believe that? Amen. Well, let's say a prayer over this. And all the baptism candidates, if you'd come and make a, a single file line uh, right, uh, right in front of the trough here, and then we'll get going. Lord, thank you for the grace, for the power of God at work in us. Thank you for the way that you're at work in these lives, some young, some older, all with different stories. And God, we celebrate as a church with them the things that you're doing in their hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. You, you can feel free to stand. You can walk over here if you want. If you can't see, just crowd over. There's no rules about this, okay? This is uh, Tacker Patton, and he uh, and I got the chance to visit in the last couple months, and Tacker's given his heart to the Lord and says he wants to follow in baptism today. So would you just welcome Tacker as he steps into the pool? Baptize his kids. Mr. Paul, hold the mic for you. Tell us your name. Page 10. When I was, I became to know Jesus when I was three. Yeah. Great, you got one more? Yep. 
I'll hold it for you. I'm Rudy, and I gave my heart to Jesus when I was five. Great. Tell us your name. Uh, I'm Bruce Collins, and I came to Jesus the first time when I was 17. All right. Bruce, if you can sit on that stool in there, we'll tip you back. One hand on your nose and grab the other hand with that. All right. Bruce, we baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Jesus when I was three. All right, do it, Dad. I'm 35, and I found God a month ago when there was a burden on my heart. He took my hand and showed me peace. We baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Powerful name of Jesus Christ. Yes, Lord. Amen. Amen. back in my heart two years ago. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I'm all emotional. I'm turned around. Okay. Here we go. 
Alexander, we baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In the mighty name of Jesus. Spontaneous baptisms. <laughs> All right, Matthew, would you lead us in a song to, tonight and let this be our benediction? in us. Thank you that we are yours. We rejoice in you, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks so much for being with us tonight. God bless you. Have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday night at 530.
Hey, I think they could use help with chairs again tonight. So if you're here and you want to help out, seven high, arms with arms, armless with armless. All right.